So it's clear that not only were they doing things wrong, they were keeping track of the particulars of it, so they had to have known how bad it was. Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Not too long ago, Inigo Philbrick was one of the best connected art dealers in the world. The son of a museum director and the protege of the legendary gallerist Jay Jopling, he was often spotted at VIP previews of major art fairs and in a prominent seat at auctions around the globe. Then, in late 2019, he disappeared. As it turns out, Philbrick was the subject of mounting civil lawsuits and ultimately a criminal case that found he conned clients out of $85 million. Prosecutors say he committed one of the most significant frauds in the art market in history. Philbrick stood accused of selling shares amounting to more than 100% in artworks he did not own, falsifying contracts, forging signatures, and inventing fictitious clients. He pleaded guilty to a criminal charge of wire fraud in November. Last week, Philbrick's case finally came to a close when the former wonderkind was sentenced to seven years in prison. That's one of the harshest sentences we've seen in an art fraud case in recent memory. Artnet News senior market reporter Eileen Kinsella, who has followed this case from the very beginning, was on the scene reporting from the courtroom. I spoke with her about Inigo's extraordinary rise and fall. Thanks for coming on The Art Angle, Eileen. Thanks for having me. Okay, remind us, who is Inigo Philbrick? Inigo Philbrick is a young, now in his 30s, art dealer who got started in his 20s and had a really auspicious start working at a great gallery in London called White Cube. And then he branched out to a satellite gallery that went out on his own and was seen as a kind of wonder kind among art dealers for pinpointing artists on the rise. He seemed to be very successful, always visible at auctions and art fairs, really caught the eye of the art world at a young age. He was kind of like a wheeler dealer type, right? He was like always in the same seat at the auctions. And I feel like he had like a five o'clock shadow, crisp white shirt, like that kind of vibe. Yeah. He definitely wore the art boy uniform. Yeah. And he was kind of at every party and everybody's Rolodex. And he experienced this sort of spectacular fall from grace. So you attended his sentencing in court in lower Manhattan. Right. Tell us about what it was like in the room on sentencing day. Who was there? How long did it take? Set the scene. It was pretty crowded. Everybody's kind of eyeing each other, trying to figure out who everybody else in the courtroom is. So the art journalists know each other. And we all sort of ended up on one side of the room. And on the other side was Inigo's fiance, Victoria Baker Harbor. They share a daughter together. Also, his mother was there. Some attorneys that are representing some of the victims that were scammed out of millions of dollars of paintings. It was very quiet. Some of us were just kind of whispering to each other. It was kind of somber. Then eventually the judge came in and Inigo was led into the room by two marshals or sheriffs. He was wearing brown prison garb. It was like this very drab brown short sleeve shirt with what looked like a t-shirt under it, brown pants. And he looked pretty thin to me. His hair is like long and kind of wavy and unkempt. And he looked a little gaunt behind his mask. I mean, I think he was always thin, but I'm sure two years in uh, jail will make you look worn out. His whole demeanor was like completely mellow, quiet, just kind of looked around at the room. He raised his eyebrows when he spotted the mom and the fiance, but almost surprisingly low-key demeanor. And his fiance, just for those who don't follow British reality television, is the star of, what is the TV show? Made in Chelsea. 
Yeah, it's a reality TV show in London that follows a group of obviously very affluent young people. And it follows that reality show drama where there's a lot of sniping, a lot of status, celebrity, wearing the right clothes, that kind of thing. So she's sort of a figure in her own right. Sounds like the art world. So what was the process like? You know, you guys were in there for two hours. What happened in there? It was longer than I expected. Even one of the attorneys that was there representing a victim said as much to me. Inigo's attorney, whose name is Jeffrey Lickman, he stood up and he proceeded to speak for about 45 minutes. But what was interesting to me was how much of it was him trying to make points in favor of leniency for Inigo and how much the judge just kept coming back at him. Like, I don't know if that's the norm in a sentencing case. I didn't hear that kind of back and forth sparring when I went to the Anna Delvey sentencing and each side said their part. So Jeffrey Lickman stood up and he launched into a statement about how the media attention in this case has been extraordinary. He was implying that it's out of proportion to the crime itself, which immediately prompted the judge to say, well, that argues for the value of general deterrence here. I mean, there was a lot of very common sense arguments that kind of came back at him. So he went from talking about the media attention and then the judge finally steered him and said, why don't you just focus on the crime to then going on about Inigo's troubled youth during which his father started having an affair with a secretary when he was 17 years old. And it was traumatic for Inigo. And the judge leapt to, so you're blaming divorce, you know, and he started ticking off the crimes like forging documents, selling more than 100 percent of a painting, taking money that wasn't his and all the stuff. And he's like, you're blaming this on divorce. And he kept redirecting the attorney. And I don't think there's anybody in the room that couldn't have not agreed with what the judge was saying, because everybody who's there presumably knows the scope of the crime. So he spoke for about 45 minutes. And then he went into arguments for leniency because Inigo had cooperated with the government and had proffered information. Another argument for leniency was the abhorrent conditions and the Metropolitan Detention Center, which the judge agreed with. But then there could also be made the argument, this is prison. Like nobody ever said prison was a pleasant experience. There was an extended argument with the judge about whether or not Inigo was hiding out when he left the country. And the judge at one point, he said it didn't matter if he was hiding out in Newark or hiding out in Vanuatu. He had stopped the legal process. He left the country and he was avoiding his victims, people that were seeking money. We'll get more um, into the Vanuatu yeah. later on. Okay. And the last half of the speech wrapped up with the remorse that he feels that he really truly is sorry and that he'll do everything he can to make the victims whole. And the prosecutor from the government, who's Cecilia Vogel, she stood up and she didn't contest the notion that he had been honest and that he had offered cooperation, but she went on an extended list of all the things of wrongdoing. It's almost surprising to the extent that the evidence is weighed because the judge is listening really, really carefully here. He's about to deliver a really heavy sentence, so they weigh everything. And you could really get that sense. I mean, it was everything from what he said to the FBI agents on the plane after he was detained to what he did when he got to prison and how quickly he started cooperating and how sorry he might not be or how terrible his intentions were. So that's one thing that I think maybe is important to emphasize is like you really got a sense that in some ways the case is unprecedented, in some ways it's not, and that they're really weighing all the evidence on both sides and in front of the judge, like really discussing it out. And so ultimately, Inigo was sentenced to seven years in prison. Was that more or less time than you expected he would get? I think one of the things that kept coming up 
in both the sentencing memorandum from the government and the guidance from the prosecutors was that here's the factors that weigh against him, you know, like fleeing the country, fleecing people, forging signatures, stealing money. And the recommended guidelines for that would have been 121 months, so a minimum of 10 years. So what the government said in its sentencing memo was, we think that his prison sentence should be below that because of the mitigating factors that he cooperated and he helped and he was showing remorse. And on the other side, that it should still be substantial enough to set an example to show that there needs to be general deterrence here. They did remark on a number of occasions, both the judge and the prosecutor and even Inigo's defense attorney, Jeffrey Lichtman, noted the opaque nature of the art market and the fact that there's so much at stake so that general deterrence has to be an issue here to set an example for what is already an extraordinarily opaque and complicated market. And so this, as far as I know, is one of the most severe sentences that we've ever seen in any U.S. court for art fraud. What are some of the other recent art fraud cases that you've covered and how do those sentences compare? Yeah, it's interesting because the detailed comparison that happens in the sentencing memo makes you realize how unique each case is. So when I was reading through the recommendations, I noticed things like he was responsible for a fraud of more than 65 million, but less than 150 million, or that there were 10 or more victims in his case. And, you know, on the mitigating side, that he's a first time offender. So in the sentencing memo, the prosecutors referenced the case with Nodler Gallery, where they were, you know, accused of selling frauds. And the person who was charged was Glafira Rosella. She wound up serving, I think it was just like the time that she served in jail, which wasn't that long. She got nine months house arrest and three years probation. Okay. In her case, they've weighed on the factor that even though she was involved in this long fraud that took place over 15 years, she wasn't the ringleader and she was arguably, well, I guess the judge found sympathy with her, that she was partners with the person who was extraordinarily abusive to her and threatening her, making her do this, making her take the art in and threatening to take their daughter if she didn't keep up with the scheme. So they mentioned that as a reference to a very light sentence. And then they mentioned Ezra Chawaki, who I think got 18 months. His fraud was smaller than Inigo's. It was something like $18 million and that it hadn't gone on for as long or been extreme and that he was an upstanding dealer from the start, Ezra Chawiki, but that then he got in over his head with some kind of civil judgment against him and then that's when things went south. So that shows you the degree to which they take into account everything that people did. So these sentences were relatively lenient, but one that was notably absent from the arguments for leniency was the one that Larry Salander got. He spent six years in jail and it was like a minimum of something like 12 to 18 years, but he spent six years in jail. His fraud was about $110 million and there was like 29 counts of grand larceny. And he was a dealer who was doing something sort of similar to Inigo, right? He was selling yeah. work that he didn't actually own or have the right to sell. Right. He took pieces that hadn't actually been consigned. There were some pieces in his Upper East Side gallery that had even been given to him for storage. And when he got in trouble, he just sold it, kept the money, never told the person that he sold it, as well as selling things that were on consignment and keeping the money. So that was about maybe the closest example and one of the stiffest sentences I've seen for art fraud. And so it sounds like the reasoning for this particular sentence is that it was regarding art that was worth so much money. It was 80... Over 86 million. So art worth 86 million. He was the ringleader. Like, he was clearly the brains behind the operation. Right. And 
those were like the main elements for why it was as strict as it was. Yeah. And the scope of it, like the fact that it was brazen and that it went on for so long, all these terms were put into the sentencing memorandum, calling it one of the most significant art frauds. And again, there's a lot of elements of it that the government was focusing on to try to get a heavier sentence and just about motive and then disdain for the victims. As we saw, they said they uncovered a spreadsheet with victims and how much they owned of each particular work and that in many cases it was over 100 percent. So it's clear that not only were they doing things wrong, they were keeping track of the particulars of it. So they had to have known how bad it was. Inigo's story, I think, is so captivating to so many people because he was this kind of glamorous Lothario figure jaunting around the art market and running to fairs and attending glamorous parties. Tell us a little bit about his rise to prominence. How did this 20-something guy end up in these sort of rarefied spaces. He was born into the art world. His mother has given some information in letters to the court asking for leniency, saying how he was born when she and his father, Harry, were living in London. And she's an artist, has been an artist for a long time, still is, teaches art. And the father, Harry, was longtime museum director who became director of the Aldrich Museum in Connecticut, which is a very influential, well-regarded contemporary museum. I don't know if he founded the ICA Philadelphia, but that's where he is now. And is just known as a very influential, plugged-in guy who's apparently very adept at fundraising. So all these things would argue for Inigo's early immersion in the art world. And then he went on to attend Goldsmiths College, where his father went. And Goldsmiths a very high-profile art school in London. And from there, he got the internship at White Cube with well-known director Jay Jopling. I mean, I don't have any doubt that his father had some influence there because I think they were both showing Anselm Kiefer around the same time. I look back at some of the exhibitions. And from there, it was sort of like off to the races. From the moment that he was an intern at White Cube, he was well-regarded. People said that he really studied auction catalogs, had a knack for knowing the ins and outs of a market, be it Rudolf Stingel, Anselm Kiefer, Christopher Wool, just any artist that he was interested in, he would instantly learn the ins and outs of their career and the market. So it wasn't long from there that then he went out, not on his own, he was backed by Jay Jopling at a gallery in London called Modern Collections. And then from there, the next move was Inigo Philbrick Gallery, which when I talked to somebody who was very familiar with his operation from the start, she said, well, he realized he could make more money being Inigo Philbrick Gallery than just Modern Collections. And yeah, so he was really Jay Jopling, who is this sort of legendary figure in the UK art world. He was really his protege and then went on to start his own business. Completely. Yeah. That makes it sound like things are going really well and it goes on top of the world. What is it that prompted his fall from grace? The worst aspects of financialization of the art market for all his knowledge and his passion for the works was just treating them like objects. And I feel like there's an analogy here and treating it as a derivative. Like when you watch the big short and you see that here's the art object that has value and the further and further you get away from hanging it on a wall and using it as collateral for a loan or like selling a a half share. People do it and it works, but the extent to which he was doing it, the speed that he was doing it at, and the lofty promises that he was making people from the beginning were just something that he could not keep up. He was just in over his head and he couldn't keep it up. This is said a lot of times, but I do think there's a lot of truth to it. And art is not a stock. If you own a share of Apple and you want to go sell it on an exchange tomorrow, 
there's a fixed price, whether it's better for you or worse for you and it's fallen or risen, there's a fixed price. When it comes to art, there's so much that goes into it. It's the artist, it's the work, it's the condition, it's the rarity, it's how much it's been on the market. And with him, he was betting that everything he had was going to keep rising. And that just doesn't work when you're flipping. Another person pointed out to me, and I think this is key too, his clients were not collectors. They're not people that were buying the work to hang it on the wall. They were giving him half the value so he could stick it in a warehouse and flip it and get a profit. He had no relationships with artists and his clients were not collectors. They weren't giving him money to buy it from him. They were giving him money and expecting money back fairly soon after. Yeah, they were investors. And the sentencing memo you mentioned describes his actions as brazen. Can you tell us about some of his most brazen actions? (laughs) Yeah. People that were familiar with his stint at White Cube told me that it was this wheeling and dealing, selling things that he maybe didn't have the right to or didn't have proper connection to, just representing that he had it because he knew where it was, was going on from the start. And one of the things that emerged in the sentencing memo was that in a deal that he did with Jay Jopling on a Christopher Wool painting and another painting, he was late in paying Jay Jopling. So instead of coming clean and admitting that he hadn't actually sold the painting, he invented a fake Argentine financier named Martin Herrero, who he said was related to his then-girlfriend, Francesca Mancini. He's not with her anymore, obviously. And for a year, strung Jay along by emailing him with a variety of increasingly bizarre excuses about why the payment was late. As Martin Herrero. Yes, as Martin Herrero. They even included Martin Herrero's supposed Gmail account (laughs) in in the sentencing agreement. That was one thing that really stood out. And then there was also a photoshopping incident where Fine Art Partners, who are the Berlin investors who sued him because he was always doing some shady things with the business deals they had with him, were looking for the whereabouts of a Christopher Wool that they wanted to sell. They wanted him to sell or he maybe represented to them that he had a deal. And so to prove that the painting was in his Miami gallery, he had a picture taken of him with the painting. You know, I guess that's maybe a sometimes useful trick of showing a newspaper with the front cover of the date to say, hey, it's May 25th and here I am with your Christopher Wool. But it later turned out that the painting was photoshopped into the picture and it had been somewhere else. Oh, my God. It's incredible. The thing that you said that I think is so interesting is that it started out as kind of aggressive salesmanship, right? It was offering to sell something that he knew someone owned and they hadn't agreed to sell it yet. And those kinds of things you hear about all the time. Like you hear about an aggressive dealer or even like in real estate. It's like, oh, you know, we're putting an offer in on that house. They don't know that they're selling it yet. Yeah. And so it's just so interesting how in this case it really slipped from aggressive deal making to illegal actions. On the one hand, it's a slippery slope. But when you look back at it, I mean, the sentencing memo includes the notion Ponzi-like. And that's what it is. I mean, the judge was saying it was like a foregone conclusion that this wasn't going to last because the model is off. You're taking money from new investors to pay old investors. So it's never going to work. It was funny. At one point, Jeffrey Lickman was referring to Byzantine serpentine schemes. And the judge said, devised by who? Who created these schemes? It was Inigo. Jeffrey Lickman was somehow implying that, oh, the whole art world works this way. And as you and I know, and we're discussing, yeah, there is some form of aggressive deal making, but clearly this took it like five levels in the extreme direction. 
And so as all of this chicanery was going on with fake Argentine financiers and Photoshop, the lawsuits started coming in. And in October 2019, Inigo fled the United States. So where did he go and what was his life like when he was living on the lam? Now we know at the time everybody was curious about where he went. He went to Australia and to Japan and to New Caledonia, which I think is a French territory. And it was maybe a couple of months that then he ended up in Vanuatu. And so he admitted to the U.S. government that he knew that they didn't have an extradition treaty. But then his fiance has argued that, and she has dual citizenship, she's British and Australian, that Vanuatu is a place that's very well known to a lot of Australian people. And that I believe she said going there is like going to the Hamptons. It's an island in the South Pacific, right? Yeah. I had never heard of Vanuatu before you reported on his life there. And as far as I learned, the only other reason why I might have known about it is because it was a location for Survivor. That's correct. Yeah, I had never heard of it. And the only people who I knew that were familiar with it were people that watched that season of Survivor. So it's interesting because as his lawyer was pointing out for a reason for why he didn't flee, like there's this parsing of fleeing the country and saying that he traveled under his own name and maybe he knew that Vanuatu didn't have an extradition treaty with the U.S., but he traveled out of Vanuatu to Japan, to Australia, back and forth a number of times under his own name. So that was his reason why he wasn't hiding, that he was traveling openly under his own name. But as I mentioned earlier, the fact of shuttering your galleries without telling anybody, knowing that people are after you, and then not even showing up on the first day of the lawsuit. And the lawsuit from Fine Art Partners, which is over 100 pages, when you read through it, you can see how the pressure was mounting for a long time before he finally fled the country. It had been going on since at least May when a painting that they believed that they owned, a Rudolf Stengel portrait of Picasso, he sold it ostensibly for them. They believed it was being sold on their behalf and that they had a $9 million guarantee. And then when it came time to the auction, he had lied about the guarantee and it underperformed. It sold for something like 5.5 million hammer, which is over 6 million with the buyer's premium. But for his intents and purposes, it would be a $5.5 million sale. And not only did it emerge that they never got the money for the sale. When they started making inquiries, they found out from Christie's that they were not even the consigner, that the consigner was another party that Inigo had sold it to or pledged it to for a loan. So they were out on all fronts. They didn't get the money. There was no guarantee, and they weren't technically the true owner of it. That's a very prime example of the bad deals that happened. And so he was living in Vanuatu for like nine months. Is that right? About six. About six months. Yeah. And he became kind of a known figure man about town. Yeah. Uh, Once a man about (laughs) town, always a man about town. Tell us a little bit about the way you learned about his life there. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of rumors. People were telling me it was the talk of Freeze. He vanished around the time of Freeze in October 2019. So a couple of months before he was arrested, I had heard from at least two people who emailed me. I guess they had read some stories that I'd written. They said that they knew where he was, but they wanted to know what the information would be worth to me. So I immediately disregarded it because I don't know who thinks that a journalist has money to pay them and under what circumstances a journalist would pay you. So one guy who had an alias that was like Scott Smith or something said, 
I know where he is. I see him most days. And his dog was in my car yesterday. And so, you know, thinking that it was just total BS, I wrote him back and I said, why are you driving his dog around? And he said a couple other things. And one other person had emailed and said that they saw him, but they wanted money. But then once he was arrested, when I heard in the middle of June in 2020 that the FBI had arrested him and that he was on a plane back to the United States, more and more people started coming out of the woodwork from Vanuatu and talking to me. They ranged from a coffee shop owner. Somebody sent me a picture of him at the coffee shop. They said that he went there every morning and that he played tennis, that he was constantly on his cell phone, and that he and you know his friend were just having a very leisurely life on the island. And he had also gotten involved in animal rescue efforts, like they adopted a dog. He was volunteering at the animal shelter, He was volunteering right? at the animal shelter. There was something at one point about, like, rescuing wild pigs, but there was a lot about the dogs and how <laughs> people were saying that he just really kind of fit into the fabric of Vanuatu. Like, one family had suffered a sudden death or a suicide of a family member, and they said that he did a lot to just try to help, whether it was, like, bringing food or, like, lending somebody clothes. There has been a lot said about how charming he is and how he's actually a very nice person. And he really seemed like he plunged into life on Vanuatu. And so when he was arrested in June 2020 by the FBI, there was a photo of him being walked to the plane by federal agents that was on the front page of the Vanuatu newspaper, right? (laughs) Yeah. Big news. It was a big it was a big deal. Yeah. I was actually speaking with someone who has family there, and they really resent the notion that somebody would come there to hide out, Mm. promoting it as like some kind of criminal hotbed, criminal hotspot or whatever. And so a friend that, you know, knew some people who were friendly with him or worked at the airport, and she said, we don't want to reinforce the notion of Vanuatu as a sunny place for shady people. They're really kind of protective and resenting that. They don't want to support that. They should use a less catchy phrase. Yeah. (laughs) So I was really interested in the fact that since he was arrested, authorities say he's been totally cooperative with the investigation. And I wonder, what does that entail exactly? Is he giving them information about other kinds of wrongdoing in the art market? Has he become some kind of informant? Yeah. I mean, he was helpful with, they call it proffer sessions, that he had like five proffer sessions with the U.S. government while he was in jail, where he gave up information about how deals went down. And I think there was some sort of an expectation that he was caught up in something that a lot of other people were involved in. And, you know, that may well be the case. But in the end, the government said that the information that he gave them. It wasn't enough to like introduce any other indictments. They were able to corroborate it on their own, but it didn't actually do anything that made them issue another indictment. And so the difference is that like in the case of Glafira Rosales, we were talking about her sentencing, she gave up information that allowed them to confirm the fraud and trace the money. You know, there was information that she offered. So it was considered valuable. It's kind of like the government saying, well, cooperation is a step down because you didn't give us anything that we couldn't have got on our own. Yeah, you helped us and you were truthful. So it's not a cooperation deal where you strike a deal and now get less jail time. Mm -hmm. All they did was say that in exchange for the guilty plea, they dropped one of the charges, which was aggravated identity theft. So it's not like a plea deal. It's not like he got technically leniency, although they consider that he gave over information. And he apparently turned over his laptop, too. He gave them, like, his iCloud account and his laptop so that they could see that what he was saying was what he was doing. And you said that Inigo's lawyer 
argued in court that he is kind of a victim of a broken system. He is a symptom of this bigger problem, which is that the art market fosters and encourages misrepresentation and aggressive, sometimes bordering on illegal deal-making, especially when artworks become these kinds of assets that are split up and sold off to holding companies. And so I wonder, like, do you consider Inigo Philbrick an outlier? In what ways is he unique and how is he representative of the kind of worst side of the art market? That's an interesting question because one of the things that Jeffrey Lichtman was hammering on was saying that he came into the art world in his 20s and his stint there ended in his 30s and he didn't arrive to the art scene. These were his words, as a fully formed person and that he watched and he listened and that began with his observation that this is the way art deals were done. As I mentioned, the judge said, you're blaming like a tumultuous childhood on him doing all these things like forging documents and things like that. Then Jeffrey Lichtman proceeded to go on and say, like, a criminal isn't just poor. There's things that are happening in their lives. He felt this tremendous pressure to support his mother and sister. That still doesn't excuse the wrongdoing. And to go back to your point, I do think that there's a fair amount of wheeling and dealing that goes on, but he clearly took it to a whole other level. So it's a question of degree. They've talked about the scope of the fraud, the fact that you can even make a distinction between whether it's greater than 65 million, but less than 150 million is like, he's clearly in the range there. You know, like there's a lot of money missing. There's a lot of art that's still being haggled over for years. And even just reading through the sentencing and seeing how like he got a hold of a painting that was worth 12 million, a Jean-Michel Basquiat, sold half of it to Sasha Pesco at a price that he said was 18 million and then said, hey, can you lend me another 3 million to pay for my half of it? And then turned around and pledged it to Athena, which is an art finance company, for a loan and transferred it to another company he owned in Jersey. Really shows you like these multi-multi layers that are going to need years to be sorted out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the prosecutor said the other day they're working with 16 restitution requests. And when the judge had said, where are they at? She just said, honestly, like, it's so complicated sorting through what he did and what fractional shares he sold and documents he forged and emails he made is taking so long to sort out. And that's why even the hope of getting your artwork back and reselling it could take years. And then it might have a black mark on it from being involved in this case. And so what do you think the art world is going to take away from this whole saga? Do you think that people are going to be more careful about these kinds of fractional deals? Do you think that people are going to see it as a deterrent? Or are they just going to say, this is a sort of crazy story, glad we're not involved? I think anybody who is using art as an investment has to be thinking more carefully. I mean, one of the advisors that I talked to, I love the way that she put it. I said, does this make you more cautious? And she said, no. She said, because I don't buy art as an investment. I buy it for collectors and they hang it on the wall. So if you are doing deals like this, you have to know that there's some risk involved. And another source that I had spoken to said he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. And there are some Pauls out there that made a lot of money. There's a lot of people that probably did get paid off and made good money on him until they weren't anymore. I would think in general that there would be more caution if this is the way you're approaching art as an investment. And He was formally sentenced to seven years, but you think he might end up actually being in prison for much less time? Yes. I was not aware that it's automatically the fact that he spent 22 months in jail, that that would come off his sentence. And there was so much talk at court, as I mentioned, about setting a sentence that's substantial enough to deliver a message about general deterrence. 
it was explained to me afterwards by his attorney that it's a foregone conclusion that your time served already is going to be applied to your sentence. So that brings us down to five years. And as part of the sentence, he's agreed to participate in a voluntary rehab program. And it's a very rigorous voluntary program where the person has to put in 500 hours and be in it for 10 to 12 months and agree to all these stipulations. And if they're a nonviolent offender, as he is, he would get a year off his sentence. So we're talking more about like three years, realistically. And most important question, is this scam story going to come to Netflix anytime soon? (laughs) I think so. I've been getting a lot of inquiries. Some people are interested in his fraud in particular because it's such a crazy story about him fleeing the country and going to this island that nobody's ever heard of and being brought back and hustled onto our private jet and zip ties to people who are more interested in scammers and fraud in general or money laundering or money laundering as it might relate to art. So I think it will definitely come to the screen at some point in the next couple of years. It really touches all the hot spots. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Eileen. This was very educational. Thanks, Thanks for having for joining me. us. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.